you'd like to stand with me in honor of the Word of God, we'll read from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gesineret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon asked, answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they were beginning to sink. But when Simon saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. We've been focusing on evangelism this year, having an emphasis on that. We went through the book of 1 Peter, and it was about evangelism as exiles. We're sojourners in this world. We're just passing through, and yet, as we are, how do we evangelize? How do we tell others about Christ? And then we went into the book of Jonah, and we talked about a lot of times evangelism is very difficult. It goes against our... um, grain maybe of the people God wants to reach out uh, to through us. And we looked at loving our enemies and evangelizing people that are very different than us. Maybe that we don't like personally, but God has his love for them every bit as much as he ever had it for us. So we're looking at some different portions in scripture about how Jesus did evangelism, how evangelism looked in the New Testament. And today you might recognize this story of when Jesus is first calling his disciples and what it looks like and what Jesus was showing them of what it looks like to evangelize. What does it look like to reach out to people and not just catch fish, but what that means uh, in catching people? I think fishing can be a little bit more of a, uh, an analogy we might relate to. Has anybody ever been fishing? You know, I mean, like when Jesus talks about Shepherding, maybe a lot of us haven't done ranching or shepherd sheep. We might not know a lot about them. We might not know a lot of about um, the culture of the Bible. But fishing is something that is uh, still around. A lot of people have an experience with. I've got to go on a couple of one of my, my main trips that I've got to go on were fishing trips. I spent 30 years doing flooring, and if you did well in in sales and stuff like that and worked in the store a lot of times you could win trips 
And so um, I won a couple of fishing trips. And uh, I got to go bass fishing at some of the most premier back bass, largemouth bass lakes um, in the world. I got to go with Tay, the first one. We flew in a little private jet into this little small town in Mexico, Baco Burrito, on a little dirt uh, landing strip. And, and we're ushered to this resort lake with, you know, grass-thatched huts, and we got to go out and catch largemouth bass, and then you'd eat them at lunchtime. You'd drive in these boats to these little islands and fry up potatoes and fry up the fish that you caught. And while we were on this little island, uh, Roland Martin came up in his boat, and everybody rushed to see him and looked to see what he had already caught that morning and see if he had set the record for the lake. Back in my day, he was the guy on TV that did fishing trips that you watch. Now there's a lot of them. But it was like somebody was famous and a lot of the guys went over and got pictures with them and things like that. So I've been on a few fishing trips, but more than that, just as a little kid, I went fishing. We had a small pond near us in Roswell. It was Peppermint Park. We'd come home from school. Man, if we could, we didn't have chores or, you know, had to do our homework. We'd jump on our bikes and all of our friends would meet in the alley as we were riding our bikes, carrying our fishing poles with a you know, little can of corn or something like that that we were going to go uh, fishing for trout. They actually stocked the little pond there with trout. And we got to know the lake. We got to know where to fish, how to fish. And sometimes we would be catching fish, and people that didn't know the little pond would come in, and they'd get real close to us trying to figure out how we were catching fish, and they weren't. And they'd be trying to cast right on top of us and trying to catch these fish, and, and a lot of times they, they weren't catching any, and a lot of times we didn't want to reveal our secret because we wanted all the fish for ourselves. <laughs> and one of the secrets that we learned was is we would, we would catch a fish a lot of times and, and a lot of times it would be uh, full of eggs and we would just slit it a little bit and push some of the eggs out and we would smash them all over our hands. We wouldn't let them see that. And we would dump out some of our little kernels of corn and we would like smush all of the eggs all over the corn and that scent and smell would get all over them. We'd put it on and we'd just... I mean, it wouldn't even hardly sink, and the trout would hit it and reel it in. And they would see us putting on corn, so they'd put on corn and try to catch these fish. But uh, they didn't, didn't have the scent, right? Didn't have, have the magic. Some, some things about fishing um, we can learn. And some things about evangelism we can learn, too. And we can overcome our fears, and we can, we can learn about, like, what is this specific place that we live in? How can we overcome our fears of, you know, not getting the hook jammed in our finger or how to cast and all the things intricate with fishing. The disciples were commercial, commercial professional fishermen. They fished with nets. They, they weren't fishing to have fun. They were fishing because it was their living. It was their profession. It was their job. And so you might think about your work and about how God in the place in your life that you have right now, how you can evangelize and catch fish um, at your workplace. This was Jesus coming into Peter's workplace. He was a fisherman, and we first read, and also it talks about, you know, his partners with him and another boat coming and uh, some other fishing uh, partners that they have, and specifically James and John, who were trained professional fishermen too. That was their work, their livelihood. 
And we read in the beginning of this text in Luke 5, 1 through 3, that on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him, for what? Pressing in on Jesus for what? To hear the word of God. Oh, that we would be a people that would long to hear the word of God. But they're pressing in to hear the word of God. Hear Jesus teach. To hear the man teach like no other man had ever taught. And he was standing by the lake. And a lot of times we call this the Sea of Galilee. And uh, obviously by calling it the, the Lake of Gesenaret, it's better because it was a lake, it wasn't a sea. Um, but however you know this, this was the place where they, they fished. Jesus sees two boats by the lake, and the fishermen are not in them. They're out washing their nets. So Jesus goes and gets into one of the boats, which was Peter's, Simon's, Simon Peter. And he asked him to put out a little from the land. And from there he sits and teaches the people. That way they're not all just pressing in, seeing, you know, just how close you can only back up so far up to the lake, right, uh, before people press you into the water. So he just gets in one of the boats and teaches the people the Word of God who are pressing in to hear the Word of God preach from this man from boat. But as we look back and see Jesus' teaching and seeing the beginning of his ministry, we will see that he wasn't always teaching in a boat and he wasn't always teaching out in this kind of scene. We see that he began just looking back in Luke 4, 18 through 21, he was in the synagogue. And as Jesus began his teaching, he began in the synagogue. And he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he gets up and reads from Isaiah. And we read this in Luke 4, 18 through 21. Jesus gets up and reads this, and he turns to this specific passage to read it. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a powerful statement. A 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah, Jesus is saying, is happening right now. It's being fulfilled. And this is how Jesus taught. So he didn't just teach out on boats and out in the countryside, but he taught in the synagogue. This is where he began his ministry. And he taught proclaiming that he was the fulfillment of Scripture. It's one of the first things we need to learn when we go out and evangelize. We need to present a Jesus from Scripture, not the Jesus of our own making. We need to learn how to handle the Word of God, and we need to, we need to learn how to uh, preach a Jesus that when we tell the story of the Bible, it's focused on who He is and how He has fulfilled all the promises of God. Paul says this in, to the Corinthians. He says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And Paul's doing the same thing. He's teaching from a gospel-centered perspective of presenting the Jesus of the Bible. And this is what Jesus is, is teaching. 
He's teaching that Scripture's been fulfilled in him. He's getting up, and this day has now come. The promises of God are being fulfilled right in your, in your sight, in your day. But as we go out and evangelize with the truth of the gospel, and the more centered on the truth of the gospel you get, the more of a reaction you'll get. And you need to be warned that it won't always be positive. Many times it will be scoffing. Many times it will be, there will be a reaction and it won't always be positive. And it wasn't with Jesus. When Jesus sat down and he began to teach in the community, um, he came up against a reaction in Luke 4. We see that when they heard these things, he, was, he got up and he talked about how, because um, they were just saying, well, this is just Joseph, who is he to say fulfilling scripture? And isn't he just the son of this guy we know, Joseph here in town? And who is he? We don't believe him. We don't believe this. We don't believe this message. But not only did they just not believe it, when Jesus got up and he started confronting them about their sin, and that's what the word of God does. It confronts people about the condition that they're in and they don't like it makes them uncomfortable. If you remember back when you were confronted, maybe you didn't like it either. I can remember in our own family, uh, we were a family outside of Christ, and when Christ began to invade our family with his love, I was a small child, like four or five, but I saw my older brothers and sisters, which I had 11 of them, uh, react in many different ways. Some responded to the gospel wanted the love of Christ almost immediately, fell in love with Jesus, started going to church, started telling other people about Jesus. But for some, it was a longer process, took years, and some of them got up from the table and stormed out, said, what are we doing reading the Bible now? Who's this Jesus guy? What are you doing, Dad? So the reaction wasn't always positive, and we need to be prepared for that. Jesus' reaction wasn't uh, positive with the people he was reaching out to, his own people. He talked about the prophets before him, Elijah, how Elijah was sent to none of the widows in Israel. He was sent outside to the land of Sidon. He was sent out. And so he mentions a couple of stories of prophets before them. Elisha, uh, the prophet, who he was sent to. None of the lepers in Israel. He was sent to a leper from Naaman. You know, named Naaman, the Syrian, Assyrian, their enemies. These prophets from of old were sent to people because where Israel was and Israel, he was confronting Israel about their sin and the rejection of the prophets and they were filled with such rage when he was announcing the first part of the good news of the favorable year of the Lord that had come to them and confronting them with their sin. They weren't ready to repent at all. What they did was they, when they heard these things, verse 28 of Luke 4 says, uh, all in the synagogue, sounds like a pretty complete rejection, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So there's a reaction a lot of times to uh, the clarity of the gospel when it is announced. But Jesus, passing through their midst, went on his way. So be prepared for rejection. Sometimes the rejection might be from your own family, might be from your closest friends, it might be from all walks of life as you confront it. Be prepared as you evangelize with the gospel and you start on a quest seeking to catch men that it won't always go your way.
And you've got to submit to God's way and see what God's doing. So be prepared for rejection. When Jesus goes on preaching in Luke 4, 31 through 37, he's teaching them, it says. He's in Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he's teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. His words possessed authority. He spoke like no man ever spoke. But a demon manifests itself in the synagogue while he's teaching. And Jesus says, be silent. Come out of him. He cast out this demon and all were amazed and said, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. Reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus didn't go off from this point, though, and go on a casting out demon ministry. What he did was he continued to preach the gospel, and he didn't let demons interrupt his teaching. Uh, You know, demons want attention. He didn't give them any. He cast them out, and he went about what he was teaching. And so... What demons object to is people seeing and hearing the clarity of the gospel, the teached word of God. So the very first principle of evangelism is being able to teach Scripture, be able to teach the word of God, not your own agenda, but present Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. Present the gospel with clarity and in a way that people can understand it from the context of the lake that they're fishing in and get in that boat with them and teach them how to find Christ. So be prepared for spiritual warfare against the message. Not against you, not anything special about you, but if you get a hold of the message of Jesus Christ, you will be confronted with a demonic. And the demonic is real. And the demonic is to be silenced, cast out, and for you to continue on teaching and presenting who Jesus is, and the truth of the gospel. In Luke 4, leading up to our text, we see Jesus also healing. We see him, uh, we we find out that Simon Peter has a mother-in-law, so we find out Simon Peter's married. He's a married man, one of the few married men um, of the called apostles, but Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. They're meeting, sounds like, in his house. Then also Jesus goes about healing any who are sick, with various diseases. They were brought to Jesus. He laid hands on them. Jesus had compassion on them. He healed them. Demons also came out. He was confronting at the same time. He was rebuking them and not allowing them to speak. And Jesus was going about ministering and bringing the good news of the gospel. And it goes on to say, though, that when the people saw them and they came to him and they said, stay here, what did Jesus do? Did he start? Uh, a healing ministry. Well, we'll stay here and we'll, 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 we'll focus on healing and we'll focus on casting out demons and we'll just do this over and over again. And Jesus said, no. He's continuing to preach the gospel. The focus is, is on the eternal souls of the hearts of men, to catch men and not to be distracted, even though it was compassionate for him to to silence these demons and cast them out, even though it was God's compassion to bring healing to people, that wasn't the focus of his ministry. He wasn't distracted by the peripheral things, that walking under the grace of the King and the reign of Jesus Christ brings. 
He was teaching the kingdom of God and that he was coming after a Goliath in your life and that Goliath in your life is sin. And he's going after it. He's going after your eternal destiny and he's coming to bring the gospel. He's coming to show you how he is the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture to redeem you from the curse of the law and the curse and the power and authority of sin in your life and to deliver you from it. He's here to set the captive free. And it's not in a superficial, physical only way, although he cares about our lives now. He's after something much deeper, and he's not going to be distracted from that focus. It's like a bulldog. He's latched on to his mission for God, and it is to bring the gospel and to fulfill the mission that God has for his life. And it's the mission that he's called you to. He's called each one of us. He's commanded each one of us that he now has all authority and power in heaven and earth, and he tells us to go, and he goes, and he tells us to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teach, and it's teaching specifically his word, what he taught us, how he taught us, how the Scripture taught us to teach that word. And it's to present the gospel with clarity, and don't let anything else get you off of that focus. Because like the woman at the well, there will be all these stories. Hey, we're supposed to worship here. Hey, this or that. Hey, you're a Jew. I'm a Gentile. Get us off on all kinds of subjects. Jesus is on one subject, the salvation to be the living water to this woman. Yes, he has compassion. Yes, he understands her past relationships. Yes, he understands the hurt in her life. But the hurt in her life is rooted in her sin, and he's come to slay the Goliath in her life. He's going after the root, and he won't be distracted from it. Not through any subject that she tries to bring up. He says, I'm the fulfillment of Scripture. I'm the living water. If you'll find me, you'll drink from me and you'll never thirst. And out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. That's the gospel. That's the thing that will change the world. But it's easy to be distracted and get led into all kinds of things. And Jesus would not be distracted. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He went right back to preaching and teaching. Here's the word of God. He did that, we see in Mark 6.34. He went ashore in another place and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Yes, many times he healed. Yes, he confronted demons and cast them out. But what does he do here when he has compassion on them? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It says he began to teach them many things. Jesus taught. He preached the word of God. Our example of when we evangelize is we need to go out teaching the word of God. The gospel. The clarity. Learn it. Get it. Rehearse it. You know, and just know and hang on to it. Don't be diverted from it. Paul did this well, kept the clarity of the gospel, and he wouldn't let anything affect the proclamation of how he presented the gospel. And in Acts 20, towards the, more the, towards the end of his ministry, in verse 27, Acts 20, 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you 
the whole counsel of God. He handled the Word of God and he took the whole purpose of God, the plans of God, the gospel of God, and he presented it to them, who the person of Jesus was, how he had fulfilled being a descendant of David, who, who Jesus actually was, and the work that he do, did, how he personally, through the work of Christ, had presented redemption through the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus, who he was. Paul presented that whole counsel of God, and he didn't shrink back from declaring it to anybody in any situation, whether kings um, or the common people or Gentiles. He, didn't, he wasn't caught up and, 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 and uh, bound by just reaching out to his own tribe, his own Jewish people. He was, he was pushed and exhorted by God to preach the whole counsel of God to all people. He was, he was, he was out for a catch. He was out for catching multitudes. And he didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. So the emphasis on this first part is we must, as we go out and evangelize, proclaim Christ, proclaim Him with clarity, proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus, proclaim who He is. And who is He? He's the fulfillment of all the prophecies, the, the yes and amen promises. Hebrews 1 1 through 3 says, Long ago and at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sin... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the excellency of all what the prophets spoke of. Jesus has come and he has fulfilled what the prophets have spoken of. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is Jesus. He's the heir of all things. This is the Jesus we need to present to people. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Is this the Jesus that you present to people? Or do you get caught up in conversations where Jesus and the gospel and the beauty and the glory of Christ is lost in some other argument? We can get into some good things. The Bible talks about angels. And we can get off, and they did in the Bible. They got off into angels, and they got off into worshiping in angels, and Colossians, and the church at Colossae, and God had to say, hey, you know, through, through the apostle Paul, let's get back to the gospel. This is the message we're dying for, not angels. And that's what Hebrews is starting off here with. Angels are creation of God, and they're glorious, they're magnificent. If you've ever, you know, had a vision or studied them, or, you know, you can kind of see how maybe you just get caught up in that. You know, you've actually experienced something, but the apostles experienced something in this text today, and it wasn't an angel. It was the power of God. It was Jesus. And the writer of Hebrew goes on and says, there ain't nothing compared to Jesus. He's the radiance. He's the exact emperor. Don't, don't get into the superiority of angels. Jesus is way over that. Don't get in, fall back into the law and the superiority of Moses. Moses was just a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son in God's house. 
And Hebrews just goes through and magnifies Christ above all things. And we need to do that as believers and not get distracted. We need to evangelize and teach the Word of God. And we need to teach the Word as Jesus. Let's be known as Jesus, people. Radiance and the glory of Jesus. Just can't seem to get that person. I want to talk about demons. I want to talk about angels. I want to talk about healing. I want to talk about gifts and this and that. And some of the, a lot of those things are good and they're in the Bible, but they're peripheral. They're on the outside. The central message that we need to hold on to is the centrality of the cross. We need to preach the word with the Christocentric center of Christ and the cross. You know, and I hope we can see the cross. I love this wall that we've done. I've seen the light behind the cross. And I, I you know, and just see everything through the cross. See the gifts of the Spirit through the light of the cross. See healing and casting out demons through the light of the cross. Get back onto the thing that will save eternal souls for Jesus and bring fruit into the kingdom. We need to evangelize and teach the Word of God. And all other words fall short. The second part we see is Jesus here commands Peter to go out and let down the nets. And in Luke 5, 4 through 6, we see that when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, and this is good, he's acknowledging him, he's master, but he's, he's having a little bit of a struggle with it, right? We toiled all night, took nothing. You might want to say that, you know, I'm a professional fisherman, I know this lake, I grew on, up on it from, from like as a kid. I know where to put the nets, when to put the nets, where to go on the lake, how far to put them down. I know the time and the seasons of the lake. This is my job, Jesus. But master, oh carpenter who knows nothing about fishing, I don't even respect your fishing ability. I don't think you've ever been on a boat and caught fish because you're the master. I'm going to go out and do what you say. And this is the second point of, besides teaching the Word of God, that when we go out to evangelize, we don't go out knowing it all, with our skill, with our work, with our little expertise in our field. We go out obeying Jesus. What He tells us to do, we do it. He says, Master, I toiled all night, took nothing, but at your word, at your word, you said to do this. You said to go into all the world. And preach the gospel. The good news. Of Jesus. And you said you had all authority and power to do it. And you were giving it to us to do. We'll go at that command. And do it. But at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this. They enclosed. A large number of fish. The nets were breaking. When Jesus told Peter to push into the deep, Simon Peter, he did say, Master, you know, we've already, we've already fished it out as hard as we can. We fished during the prime time of the day and night. They're not there, but I'll do it as you say. I'm tired. Doesn't feel like a good time to speak about Jesus. This person has crossed my path right now. And you want me to do it? I don't even like them. But you like them. So I'm going to do it. 
I'll let down my nets. I'll present you, Jesus. You did it to me. And when I do, we'll see the great and never tired and never weary Christ work in people's lives. And it'll bring us joy like no other joy can bring us. Obey out of your love for God and evangelize out of your love for people. Love God and love your neighbor. The third point we see here is that Peter was humbled. We need to humble ourselves. In Luke 5, 8, when Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Just reaching out, grabbing around Jesus' knees. Saying, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's going on here? Peter's overwhelmed. This miraculous multitude of this catch of fish. Supernatural. Every sense of the word. Peter is sensing the power and the presence of God. He doesn't understand it fully. He doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. But the presence of God is there in this miracle. It's powerful. It's felt. It's felt by Peter. And he falls down at Jesus' knees. This happened many times when people came into the presence of God. If we look at Isaiah or Ezekiel, just two examples. Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah is confronting the presence of God. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Another version says, I'm a man undone. Peter was undone. Never seen anything like this. He's falling at the the knees of Jesus and saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He senses the holy presence of the holy God that we sang about this morning. That holy God. And as we sing together, his presence inhabits the praises of his people he reveals his holiness to people. He reveals his holiness to heartfelt worshipers who say, show me your holiness, God. Reveal Jesus in a deeper way to me. Let it motivate me to bring fruit into your kingdom and tell other people about you. Isaiah has that. He goes on after saying, woe is me, I'm a man undone. He goes on and speaks the word of God to people who God tells him will not hear him, will not listen to him, and not respond to his word. And Isaiah says, I'll do it. So he was kind of prepared for rejection too, but he went out and proclaimed the word of God. Ezekiel does the same thing. In Ezekiel chapter 1, in his calling, says, when I saw the glory of the Lord, when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. I fell on my face. I mean, Ezekiel went just all the way down, not just to the the knees of Jesus. He just fell on his face. This happens. We need to be a people who humble ourselves for we're on our face. Falling at the knees of Jesus saying, I can't do this. I'll never be any good at it. And I have tons of fears. But at your command, 
I'll do it. And in our feeble attempts, Christ is magnified. And that's what happened with Peter. He saw in this miracle the pure grace of Jesus that was saving him, that was bringing him into his kingdom. He experienced the presence of God in a real and palpable way. It wasn't a theory. Teaching was the life, the presence of Jesus. It was the power of gospel to save Peter. He was awakened to the power of God's grace, and he was humbled by it. If you've never been humbled by the grace of God, you know, have you found it? Have you begun to find it? Have you ever begun to say, well, well am I in your holy presence, God, in your great glory? Peter understands. He's astonished at this miracle. He senses and knows the presence of God, and he's humbled by it. So as we evangelize like Jesus was evangelizing, we teach the Word of God, and we teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. We teach the, the Word of God concerning his son, Jesus. We obey Jesus out of love for him. We're obedient to his commands. And as God's people experience his presence, experience his pure grace, we humble ourselves. And lastly, in our text today, we treasure Christ above all else. Luke 5.11 says that when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything. Remember uh, Peter, you know, Jesus had just been in his home and healed his mother-in-law. He left everything. His wife there said bye. Called to follow Jesus. They left everything and followed him. And it's a boldness, but it is a brokenness at the same time. It's a bold brokenness to become fruitful followers of Jesus, fishers of men who will love people, serve them in humility, and most times watch the gospel be rejected and seemingly not bear the fruit that we hoped that it would. But our confidence isn't in our eyes and what we see. It's the confidence of the faith that we have in the beauty of Jesus and who he is and that he's called us to do this and so we continue to do it. We learn to treasure Christ above all. In Luke 14, Jesus says this a little bit later in verse 33 of Luke 14. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Have you ever renounced all that you have and treasured Christ above everything? I mean, made the best thing you have such a far distant second to who Jesus is. And I admit, Peter's not all the way there right in this first calling, but he gets closer and closer as you see his life as when Jesus later says, who do men say that I am? And Peter's seen a little more now, saying, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Peter continues after the resurrection as Jesus unfolds the scripture to them in Luke 24. In his resurrected body, Jesus gets, you know, Peter gets a little bit more. And he eventually goes out and proclaims the message that God calls him to, go and feed my sheep, go and feed my lambs, go and tend them. Go and 
in your love of me and love others. Love those that I'll call you to. Go and be fruitful and multiply. Not at home back with his wife, but out multiplying spiritually in the kingdom of God. Go and multiply. This is what God is calling us to recognize in this text. Paul said it in Philippians 3.8. Mike covered this not too long ago. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Is everything a surpassing loss to us? Counting it as like nothing in the value of treasuring Christ? Like was it easy to walk away you know, from those nets because of the, the beauty of that miracle and the palpable presence of God? Probably it didn't stay that easy, <laughs> walking away, leaving everything. It's not that there aren't going to be difficulties, but looking back on it all, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Would we recognize this Jesus? Would we recognize the Jesus of Scripture? Would we treasure him above all? We encountered him. We do encounter him. Thomas had some issues because he hadn't seen the resurrected Christ yet. And in John 20, Jesus confronts him and says, Put your finger here and see in my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Can we put our hands in the suffering side of Jesus And consider and treasure Christ above all and what he suffered for us above all and be willing to go. Another great poet, Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3, talking about Jesus. He said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. They recently did a composite of Jesus and they took all these skulls and dug them up from the century back then and then they took a mask expert when they combined all those skulls and the form of it and then took a mask expert and put it on that skull and that facial feature of the combined computerized version of all those skulls they dug up in the Middle East and they said this is a kind of a composite of Jesus, what he probably looked like. And it fulfilled Isaiah 53 for sure. There was no former majesty that we should look upon him. He wasn't some gorgeous, handsome guy that the TV always makes him out to be. There was something much more deeper and powerful about him than outer beauty. It was that he presented the word of God to the people, and that's what they were hungry for. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief very familiar with grief. Grief was a part of his everyday existence and life. He was a man of sorrows. He was a man acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And we have to be confronted with that. We have to be confronted with that we didn't esteem Jesus. We didn't. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, and when you confront people with the gospel of that, it's hurtful to their pride. And you present that your treasure is in Jesus and he was crushed, he was put to grief, and that we didn't esteem him and you don't esteem him, 
and you're, you know, and us, we're offended at the gospel, we're offended, our pride is offended that we need help, we want to build our own tower to God, we don't want God to come down to us, we don't want to humble ourselves when you're confronted with the truth of the gospel, and the suffering servant's like, well, not for me, he's just a carpenter man, he's just a, the man from, you know, this man from Galilee, yeah, I acknowledge historical figure, but not my personal Lord and Savior, the one that I can put my hands in his suffering side, see his suffering and grief, that it was all for me. So our last point is that we need to treasure Christ, Jesus, above all, that he was the one that was crushed and that he was put to grief for our salvation. And Isaiah 53 says, He shall see his offspring. Jesus will see his offspring, and his offspring isn't made through physical i explained this to one person you know jesus never married and you know he never had children he's like that's the saddest thing i've ever heard man my whole life i you know i just i want to get married and i want to have children you know that's so sad and so you know he was really studying the da vinci code and how jesus went off and with mary and had kids and everything because he couldn't live with the sadness that that jesus had no kids and i said well he didn't his offspring is you if you'll come to him by faith in jesus your offspring is that the scripture in Isaiah says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted to righteousness. He'll draw you. You can be one of the many. You can come to be his offspring. You can come and be made righteous through your faith in Jesus. You are his treasure. You are his offspring. You are and can be the child of God. But his diversion was, you know, the Da Vinci Code, and he wanted to go back and tell me about how this whole thing was built up, and Jesus still has descendants in the world today through Mary. But a lot of people are lost in a lot of different stories. But our story to bring in boats that are just full and sinking with, with fish, with, with people, is accomplished through us preaching and teaching the centrality of the gospel through the word of God and presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of scripture. It's obeying Jesus when he tells you to speak, to speak. It is humbling yourself and realizing it's okay to admit you have fears about it and that you can't do it. But above all, to treasure Christ and be willing to treasure him. If people can see that you treasure Christ above everything else in your life, they want to follow that one. And as long as he's second, third to some other agenda that we have, some other presentation of the word of God that we want to bring up, some other story instead of the centrality of Jesus as my ultimate treasure, what he did at the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension at, right, at God's right hand isn't the central focus, they'll follow that story and they won't be offended by it and they'll like you and be your buddy. Or you can go after their eternal soul and present the gospel to them. So leave everything and treasure Christ as your greatest treasure. And we, as Grace Harvest Church and with our community here in Rio Doso, will go and make disciples of the beaten, crushed men of sorrows who alone has the power and authority to raise up children unto God. Amen? And so we're going to celebrate communion together and we're going to worship. And I hope your heart is inspired through God's word to worship Jesus, see his beauty. Uh, more than when you first came in.
Um, if you're familiar, we have uh, some communion elements in the chairs in front of us. Jesus said, when you come together to remember him, and to remember him this way, to remember the gospel, remember the body of Christ that was given for you. And in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and he gave thanks to the Father for it, and he broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. like manner he took the cup this is the cup of the new covenant my blood given for you for the remission of sins take and drink of it and when you do do this in remembrance of me partake of the cup thank you father for Jesus thank you for his broken body and his shed blood Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Anoint our hearts to praise and worship and glorify you. For you alone are worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.